There are a lot of words that are not easily translatable. One single English word in Klinchon could be like an entire sentence because we have to explain the context of the word cancer, for example. Can't really explain what cancer is. In past, it has always been labeled as strong disease. Lately, it's been broken down to being explained as a parasite. Again, I can only speak to my region. Most often, people associate cancer with death. There's never, you know, any situation in my experience where people talk about cancer and then talk about how the person could potentially survive. It's never ever seen as something that someone can recover from. Welcome to season two of Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious illness and health-related situations as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Strachan. Context is very important in healthcare. In this episode, we explore the context created at the intersection of geography, history, language, culture, and healthcare resources when Indigenous people in Canada's far north require care for serious illness. In a wide-ranging conversation, Leanne Mantla-Luck shares her knowledge, reflections, and experience with healthcare from her perspectives as a nurse and an Indigenous person living in the Northwest Territories. Leanne Mantla-Luck is a registered nurse who currently lives and works in the Northwest Territories in Northern Canada. She's worked extensively in clinical roles both in hospital and community settings and works fluently in both her Indigenous language and English. She is recognized as a leader in promoting culturally appropriate healthcare and research in the Northwest Territories. Her most recent work was extensive involvement in advising and engagement with Indigenous leadership during the pandemic, and particularly in brokering relationships between community government and health system leaders. Leanne has contributed to and authored a number of guidelines, articles, and infographics related to cultural safety in nursing and in research. So Leanne, thanks so much for speaking to me today. I think that because this country, Canada, is such a huge, vast landmass that many who are not from here can't imagine, we'll just take the time to situate ourselves today because it is actually really important when we think about the conversation we're going to have in terms of geography and language. And so I'm coming to you today from uh, Hamilton, Ontario, which is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people and the land protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. Those are the traditional people in my territory. So I'm wondering if you can share the traditional people from your area of this country and where you're situated. So uh, thank you, Patricia, for having me again. I'm coming to you from Yellowknife Northwest Territories, very, very far from Ontario, which we consider the South. <laughs> um, but I'm originally from um, a small First Nations community, which small by, you know, city standards, but large in terms of it's the largest uh, First Nations community in the Northwest Territories. And so I'm from Beshikong, Northwest Territories. Um, and that area is comprises of about, I don't know, 3,000 Tlinchol people. So I'm Tlinchol First Nations. This, my community, Beshikong, has about 2,500 people approximately, but currently in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories. And that, how far is your home community from where you are now then? My home community, depending on how fast you drive, um, typically <laughs> takes about an hour and a half one way from Yellowknife, averages about an hour's drive, again, depending on how fast you drive. <laughs> so there are go, roads. There yeah, are exactly. Roads. It's, it's, a, it's a partially paved, windy road, um, but it'll a round trip is about generally two and a half to three hours. 
So I think it's important today that the uh, context that we're going to be uh, talking about your work and the observations that you've made are specific to your experience and, and in your communities and may be generalizable to others, but not necessarily. Yes. Yeah. So like if if I were to speak about, you know, the people of my region or, you know, myself as a central person in the context of healthcare, um, it would be easy to discern um, if I was speaking to somebody from the North- Northwest Territories. But as somebody from the South, I would just say I'm Dene from the Northwest Territories because you're not going to know <laughs> if I say, oh, I'm from the central region of Northern Canada. That, that doesn't mean anything to you unless you actually have experience or even just context about the people from the North. So importantly, that may have implications when we think about translators then. Of course. Um, and as I mentioned uh, before in our uh, previous conversation, um, so we have... I, I don't know a lot about, uh, you know, healthcare from a First Nations perspective for other parts of Canada, but I know that even just from living and working in Edmonton, Alberta for a short period of time, if someone from my community were to come to, or sorry, to go to Edmonton for medical travel to see a specialist and they didn't speak English, they wouldn't necessarily rely on Alberta Health Services to just have an interpreter handy. So typically what happens is that they would bring a family member to interpret on their behalf as well as be there for, you know, support um, as a medical escort, uh, sorry, as a non-medical escort. But here in our region and other parts of uh, the Northwest Territories, a lot of the community health centers have interpreters on staff and they're typically people who are from the community who know the community and they know the people from the community and um and they're trained as medical interpreters because they speak the language languages yes okay and so i think another uh important issue here is uh if people are receiving care in the far north uh, that's one thing, but then they come, as you say, south <laughs> sometimes, many times. And so uh, access to family members may be very different. Yes, of course. And so which is why um, typically, like I like I said, is um, if you only speak your Indigenous first language and aren't proficient in English, uh, typically what happens is that a non-medical escort accompanies you, and that's almost always a family member who will come in and interpret on your behalf. And that can lead to many challenges, um, especially when um, you're relying on someone with a non-medical background to interpret, you know, the intricacies of medicine to you or for you on your behalf. Right. So if a yes. non-Indigenous doctor specialist um, is explaining a plan of care and the family member who is acting as an interpreter doesn't fully understand how to interpret certain medical terminology, um, that can lead to a lot of um, confusion for the patient. And perhaps for the decisions that they make about the decisions they make, too. Oh, of course, because if they're relying on the interpreter to provide them with what they feel is the correct information, then they're making the decisions based on what they're being told. And then I, I'm not sure if this is where you want me to tell my story. Sure, um, you can tell so your story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> segue into, into this um, one um, experience um, I had, and I wrote about this in one or two articles, I can't remember. So when I was working at uh, the hospital here, um, I was assigned a patient from my region um, and the doctor who was on that week as hospitalist wasn't aware that I spoke the language. So when this client was admitted, they didn't have an advanced directive. There was no code status established. Um, So when the physician came to speak to the cl- to the patient and his family. Um, the family had uh, opted out of having a medical interpreter who was 
who worked at the hospital um, come in because they wanted to interpret for their family member themselves. And so when the doctor was talking to the patient about advanced directives, code status, and the varying, you know, various stages of code statuses that we had in the hospital, and all of the implications of said statuses, the doctor was under the impression that the family member was describing each category um, as he was explaining it. But unbeknownst to him, the family member was omitting a lot of critical information. And because I had been living out of the community for so long, a lot of the people in that room didn't know who I was. And they likely thought that I lost my language. But when it came time for the, the patient to you know, consent to whatever category he wanted, he wanted to be a full code. And this person was quite elderly and frail. Um, so when he was all ready to sign um, the consent form, I said to the doctor, you know, um, I hate to interrupt, but I'd like to, to speak to you urgently. And, you know, he was understandably upset that I was interrupting this conversation. And I said, no, we really need to have a talk. So I pulled him out of the room. I, I told him that um, the family was not being completely forthcoming with all of the information that you were providing to the patient. And he didn't really comprehend, you know, the consequences of being full code at, you know, almost the age of 80. And with all of his uh, medical history, um, this is a conversation that we need to have again, but this time we need to bring a medical interpreter in the room because they're going to interpret the medic the information as you're explaining it. Yeah, he was surprised. He didn't know that I spoke Kichon. And um, so I said, we need to have this conversation again. So the doctor went back into the room and said, basically, you know, I understand that you're not telling the your family member everything as I'm explaining it. So we're going to have this conversation again, but we're going to wait for the um, hospital interpreter to come and uh, have them in the discussion, have them in the discussion with us because we need to ensure that uh, your family member is getting their information, the appropriate information as I'm explaining it. We had this conversation all over again. When the interpreter arrived, the client still consented to being a full code, but at least he knew, you know, all the consequences of being in that category. And then when the interpreter left the room, the doctor wanted to know to, uh, you know, uh, from the family member who was interpreting, why didn't you give all the information as I explained it? Why didn't you tell your family member that, being a full code meant we are going to be doing compressions, which will probably break your ribs. Um, why didn't you explain to your family member that it, when we intubate you, this is what could potentially happen? And that when you're being put on life support, it means that you're not going to be awake during this process. And it doesn't necessarily mean we are going to, what the family member explained to the patient was, the doctor is going to put you on a machine that is going to put you to sleep. And then when you wake up, you're going to be better, which is essentially all that was explained. The doctor is going to hook you up to a breathing machine that is going to help you breathe until you're able to breathe on your own, but did not explain about what being intubated means and that all of this life-saving these life-saving procedures is going to happen really really fast it's not going to be you know over the course of several hours and that potentially at the end of performing all of these life-saving measures you may or may not recover none of that was explained all of it was explained in a very positive light that we're going to perform all these life-saving measures and you're going to get better. So the family member explained their reasoning was they didn't want to depress the family member by, you know, telling them about the potential poor outcomes and they didn't want them to lose hope. So that that was their reasoning for omitting critical 
information. So that's just one example in which, you know, um, having a family member interpret on your behalf, which is great in most circumstances, but in situations like this, it's, in my opinion, very unethical and very unsafe practice. Thanks for sharing that. I, I think that will resonate with people, not just in the circumstances that you're describing, because anytime you're working with an interpreter and with a family member, those are potential issues, aren't they? And in a way, it's a lot to put on that person, you know, when they uh, are forced to be the person to use the words. And, and that also makes me wonder about the words that get used. I, I'm sure I don't know the language. So, you know, there must be medical words that there isn't a term for. Um, yes. Um, and again, um, I mentioned this briefly in our previous conversation. So like there are definitely, there are a lot of words that are not easily translatable. And my mother, who is uh, a language and cultural um expert in our region um, can attest to this um, because she has also been responsible for interpreting, not necessarily for medical purposes, but just for her job. One single English word in Klinchon could be like an entire sentence because we have to explain the context of the word and, you know, explain it a little bit further. So cancer, for example, can't really explain what cancer is. In past, it has always been labeled as strong disease. Lately, it's been broken down to ex being explained as a parasite. And typically, when you talk about cancer, again, I can only speak to my region. When you talk about cancer in my region, it's very hush-hush. It's always so-and-so has cancer. And most often, people associate cancer with death. There's never, you know, any situation in my experience where people talk about cancer and then talk about how the person could potentially survive. It's always a death sentence. And unfortunately, um, a lot of the times when someone is diagnosed with cancer, it's always at the late stages. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I can understand, you know, how, how people can, you know, e equate the two. It's it's never ever seen as something that someone can recover from. So Leanne, you've mentioned that cancer, the word cancer was a taboo kind of term and that people have different terms for it. Is there anything else in terms of particularly serious illnesses that are hard to talk about or not talked about? Yes. Um, when we were speaking about cancer being a taboo uh, topic of conversation. The other taboo topic, and again, I only speak to my region, is um, the subject of mental health illnesses and specifically about suicide. Like other places in Canada, um, the mental health crisis is, you know, at an all-time high. It, we have suffered a lot of loss in um, my region, um, especially in recent years. The thing is that these losses due to suicide are never talked about. A lot of the times it's the older generation of people from my region who, who don't talk about it. And it's really sad. Someone will come, a relative of mine will come to me and say, oh, um, did you hear so-and-so died in one of the communities or even our own community? And I would say, that's really sad. Um, what happened? Oh, well, you know, they, 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 they just died without giving any context. But then later it'll come out that it was self-inflicted with a lot of digging. It'll come out that, you know, these individuals had, been having issues with the, you know, their mental health, um, depression, just the topic of how these individuals have died is never, ever brought up. It's all kind of said very quietly. Mental health illness is just, 
is just never something that was spoken of. And so when I was having a conversation with another relative about the mental health crisis in the North or even just in our region and how they were going to be sitting at a meeting um, to talk about suicide in, you know, amongst the younger population and maybe they could have a sharing circle about, you know, how they can tackle this problem. And my reaction wasn't, I guess, not even supportive, but I guess maybe conducive to the the whole idea behind the sharing circle was initially, it wasn't my intention, but I, I, I laughed about the idea of elders from my region sitting around in a circle talking about suicide because suicide is never something that's spoken about ever. If someone dies by suicide, it's never, ever brought up it's always oh so-and-so died and so when I laughed um it wasn't because I thought it was funny in a haha sort of way I thought it was funny that for such a taboo topic I couldn't believe that they were going to be sitting around and discuss strategies on how to prevent this when they couldn't even say the word definitely mental health illnesses suicide very, very, very taboo subjects to the point where conversations just don't happen. And it's, mm. I find very detrimental to the people who are suffering from depression, um, just as an example, um, that they feel that if this is something that they can't even talk about with close family, friends, how are they ever going to feel supported? and actually want to seek help for something like this, if it's something that's always ignored. How is it then that do, would people ever raise the issue uh, with, you know, reach out for help with, with a nurse, let's say? Yeah, um, I think that when people do reach out for help, it's always with the knowledge that they likely won't be able to get help from anyone in their family. So they do have to go outside and get help from a healthcare provider. But how are you going to do that when you don't have the support following an appointment such as this, right? Okay. Um, even talking to other people, not just even through work, um, just in general, just having conversations with like other colleagues. It's just, you hear that people who are actively trying to get help, but are also who are also not getting support from people that they're close to because just as an example this is what they're told what they're told is that you know depression is just something you just have to deal with and you just have to get over it getting help even through services like counseling it's just something that you don't do you don't talk about your problems so how are we supposed to support people who are wanting to seek mental health support when you know that they're not going to be supported by the people that they're closest to. Uh, like how, how, how do we fix that? I, I don't know, but I know that the conversations definitely need to be, need to happen. So the other thing that I was thinking is that uh, in terms of trying to provide support, this has huge implications for us as clinicians coming to figure out how could we do this in this community and uh you know i think so often there's a lot of peer support or uh support groups that we talk about a so mts or, or or groups and and i'm just thinking about again we need to say is how how appropriate are those things to the context or are there other ways and how can we meet people's needs? So if we can't talk about the issue, then that's the first problem. For sure. And then I think the other thing that some clinicians take for granted is that like, you know, these support groups happen in larger centers. There might be several throughout the city. So anonymity is a huge thing, but mm -hmm. you could never have, you could never go to a support group in in a, you know, one of the communities in my region without knowing that you're going to know everyone in the group. You might even be related to some of the people from the group. So how would you feel comfortable 
speaking about something that you're going through without the fear that, you know, the person sitting next to you is going to go and tell your mom or your sister, your brother, someone you're related to, oh, you know, so-and-so went into this group and they talked about all these problems they were having. And this is something that happens in rural communities as well. And so I think you you have alluded uh, to the fact, I think, in some of your writing around what it's like being from a small community and the implications that has for sharing health information, you know, as as somebody that might need it, how comfortable you are. For sure. I mean, like, and I wrote about this in my, you know, in my articles about how non-Indigenous people would be all excited when they hear, oh, Leanne grew up in her home community and then she came back and worked there. How exciting, how great for the community, how great for her. And then often I'm asked, you know, do you find it difficult to work here? And I think they think I'm going to say no. And I say, yes, of, of, of course it's it's difficult, you know, for being someone who lived out of the community for so long that that doesn't always happen a lot of people don't leave or if they do leave they leave for very short periods of time and they come and set up home um in the community you grew up from or grew up in and then i went away to school um and then i've worked in different places in uh, canada so when i came back i definitely wasn't you know, well-received, there were, you know, wasn't with welcome arms from a majority of the community. The only people that I found were happy that I was back, like I mentioned before, was the elders. And then a lot of the other people just didn't trust me. Um, They didn't trust that if they saw me in a healthcare setting, that I wouldn't go home and talk about them to my family at the end of the workday. So I, you know, that was something that I had to overcome and deal with. Um, it wasn't always pleasant, but like I said, um, I, the, the elders made my work worthwhile and I really enjoyed the work that I did. It was just not what people pictured initially about me coming back. I think that's true of so many small communities. You know, there's lots of real positive things to them. And then and then there, there are sides that are challenging. So I'm thinking about all of the information that's available to in the public space around cancer prevention, uh, early case finding, and support for people who are going through treatment and surviving treatment as well. Are those kinds of things accessed? So I know here in Yellowknife, they they do have a cancer care team. There's a cancer navigator, but I personally have never utilized these um, services. Like when I had my own uh, cancer diagnosis, um, just because at the time I honestly wasn't aware that this was a service that was provided. Um, But that was almost 10 years ago. Also, because of my background, you know, in nursing, and also because I'm a pretty self-sufficient person, I'm very independent and very strong-willed, I wanted to kind of contain my own diagnosis to my most, you know, inner circle, I guess. But yes, these services are available, but I'm not entirely sure how accessible it is. And even when I've been working in the community, my home community of Beshko and having to navigate care for people who were diagnosed with cancer, it was always in the form of emails from the cancer care team or as part of follow-up letters. Um, there, there was one example where uh, a patient did come to me to s- say that they had been diagnosed with cancer and they received a phone call from the cancer care navigator, but they still really didn't understand what the diagnosis was in terms of, does this mean I'm going to get better? Um, I'm not exactly sure when they told me where the cancer was located, exactly what that meant for treatment, potential surgery. All they said was, I had cancer here, but they didn't explain 
you know, what stage they didn't explain if I needed to have treatment or if I needed to have surgery. So what I did was I reviewed the information that was provided to this person. And basically the, the, the note was that the cancer care team had spoken to the patient and the diagnosis was explained and the follow-up would be if the patient wanted to reach out to them. Um, so then I went, I pu- I pulled it up, like basically I pulled up, a, you know, a diagram of the human body online, brought the patient in, told them where the cancer was located, I guess, for lack of a better word or how to explain it. But I tried to explain it really simply and I had to do it in Kichon um, to say, this is where they found the cancer but based on all of the notes that I could see, there was no staging. And this is why this person had to go see a specialist to discuss uh, potential surgery, potential treatment. But before they saw me, they didn't know any of this because it wasn't explained to them in person. It was just all by phone. And I and I understand that with the pandemic that, you know, uh, in-person care was really difficult to come by. But even so, when... <laughs> Someone is going to be told that they had cancer. I found that calling them to say this wasn't really appropriate, especially if this was the first time they'd heard it. So uh, there's so many things to uh, pick up from that. But one is the role of the nurse, how so many times nurses are in the position for explaining a diagnosis, perhaps even the person really hearing it for the first time, um, interpreting meaning, and responding to questions. I I know we often talk about picking up the pieces after a physician has left the room because people often have questions and they ask the nurse and those things fall to the nurse. And you're describing a situation here where that is the position that you're in. Exactly. And I, I and I couldn't figure out if this person had already spoken to a doctor, but just based on the notes, like I said, there was just the documentation that the cancer care team had reached out to the client and that was it. And again, for this particular person, English was, you know, not a language that they were confident in. So I had to, like I said, really break it down and explain it in Tlingchon as much as I could. Again, it was just, I felt like it wasn't necessarily my place, but I also wasn't going to let this person down, especially when they sought me out as someone from home that they could speak to. And also, there was also the trust factor too, right? So somebody that knew me um, and also knew a little bit about my own history with cancer. So I think that might've also had something to do with it, but I think being someone from home was also a factor. So let's talk about that for a minute, the the trust factor. Uh, That's a huge issue for, for everyone really, but are there any particular challenges in terms of language and the situations that you're describing then and how challenging it might be to establish trust in a caring relationship. I'll get into my own personal experience after, but just to give you context about how I've been told that um, it's difficult to establish trust building relationships with non-Indigenous healthcare providers is where a family member was telling me that they, they saw a doctor about one of their health issues during an appointment and then they had another appointment set up to talk about something else that's on their list of things that they needed to have looked at. I just asked them, why didn't you take care of all of this in your last appointment with the doctor? And the way that they explained it to me, and and I can understand this, was that the doctor they saw was a locum. And Therefore, they didn't feel that they could explain or tell them about all of the medical issues that they were having in a 15-minute appointment 
And also they kind of felt like it was, in their words, a waste of time to try to talk about all of their issues with someone who they weren't confident they were going to see again. They felt that they just didn't want to put in the time to establish a relationship because this person, this doctor that they were seeing was just someone who was only going to be seen once. And then they would have to explain themselves all over again in the coming weeks to another doctor and then repeat the process again about five different times before they would have all of their medical issues explained and maybe partially resolved or not resolved at all because they spent about, you know, five to 10 visits talking about all of this with five or 10 different doctors. So building trust, building relationships can be quite difficult. Um, And especially in the context, again, as I explained in previous examples where English is not this person's first language, when you have to rely on seeking healthcare from a non-Indigenous person and then having to rely on a medical or non-medical interpreter, there's potential for having critical information lost in translation. As explained in my previous example, that was one really extreme one, but there's also that chance. An example of trust building in the context of, you know, coming into a First Nations community as a First Nations person from that community. When I first began working in my home community of Bechacon, um, I, at that point, had been away, living away from the community for about 10 years. The only reason I came home, so to speak, was because my father had just passed away and I needed to be home to be closer to my mom. I had been working in the health center for a few months and um, I was on my own at that point, working independently after an orientation period. And I called um, a female elder into my exam room and um, she looked really nervous. She followed me in. I let her into the room, sat her down. And before I even had a chance to introduce myself, say that I'm I'm from here. I speak the language. She said in very broken English um, about getting an interpreter into the room. And I just looked at her and I said, in Kichon, why do you need an interpreter? I can speak to you myself. And pure shock on her face. She was just floored. And then she laughed. And then she said, you're Kichon? And I said, yes, I said, I'm, I'm from here. And she said, I thought you were white. Awesome. And, you know, big laughs all around because that's pretty funny. And then um, she wanted to know who my parents were, who my grandparents were. And after we established who I belong to in the community, um, we proceeded with her appointment. And at the end of the appointment, I walked her out into the waiting room and she thanked me and shook my hand and said that she was so happy to have a teenager speaking nurse in the community. And she just, you know, was so grateful that uh, I, I was the one who saw her that day. And so honestly, like still to this day, that's best day of work for me in the community <laughs> because the elders were honestly like the highlight of, of my career so far. So that's wonderful. And uh, I'm wondering, before we get any further, how many, you're, you're talking about people, some people can speak English, some can't. So are the majority of people not English speaking? I, I don't want to say the majority of people, but definitely the elders in the community do not speak English. Um, yes. So, you know, the elders in the community don't speak English. Um, but again, the elders, many of them are going or are gone now. Um, a lot of young people speak English as their first language. Just to answer your question, a lot of people do speak English, but the elders in the community do not. Right. And of course they are more likely than others to require care for a serious illness. 
And the other thing that strikes me from your story is about the importance of belonging or community, family connection around uh, how, you know, it really important to trust building and uh, the whole relational work that you're doing. So family figures big. Yes. And who you are. And so how how do family so in a serious illness situation can you can you tell me what is the role of family uh how is family involved in conversations um you've given the one of the examples that you you first let off with was really around the protection that family were protectors of from information um when it was or gatekeepers when when it was hard information. But family members when a person is very ill are very important. Yes, I can give you, I'll repeat the example I gave you in our previous conversation, but then I'll make it a little bit personal first is, so when my grandmother was admitted to hospital after she'd had a stroke, my father was the oldest in the family. So therefore he was the decision maker because my grandfather had already been gone for a while at that point. Um, Thankfully, the physician who was looking after my grandmother was a longstanding colleague of mine, as well as he had been working in the North long enough to know how the family dynamics work, especially in healthcare, you know, in the context of healthcare. And then also having my mother present, because again, I mentioned this, that she's considered an expert in language and culture in my region. We didn't have a medical interpreter there because we didn't require one. I was also present um, and I'm also known for giving information in a very direct way which is not the Indigenous way, um, so to speak. So when the doctor was explaining the prognosis, the potential for survival, um, what could happen, should we proceed with life-saving care? My mother explained all of this, you know, in a very caring way, but also in a very matter-of-fact way, because she knew that my dad was spaced with a very difficult decision. He was put in a very difficult place because he also had several family members that he needed to explain things to and also to justify his reasoning. Um, Because in my experience as a healthcare provider, as in my experience as somebody from the region, from the community, almost always when patient is faced with, or, you know, or put in, I guess, or they're in a position where they require life-saving services, the family always chooses to do everything medically available and necessary to save their family member's life. Even when it is explained to them that doing all of this is very, very potentially harmful to the patient, It could cause them a lot of pain and distress, and the outcome may not always be positive. When I facilitated in explaining all of this alongside with my mother to my dad, he made the decision not to proceed with life-saving care, but just to keep my grandmother comfortable. And then she then passed three days later, but at least she was as far as we were aware, comfortable. You, you, yeah. So to answer your original question about how there are cultural differences in care, you know, in the context of serious health issues. One of the things I mentioned to you before was that unless you've worked in a first nations community or just in a larger area or a city where there is a large first nations community, there are some non-Indigenous healthcare providers who don't really understand how the process of dying or death is handled by some First Nations communities. So 
here I can speak to this is that when someone is dying, it's not necessarily just the family who's involved in this process with the patient. The entire community is involved in this in this process. So when someone is in palliative care, everyone who is able to comes to shake the hand of the patient and to pay the respects to their family. That, especially here, that's a lot of people. A lot of the times, you know, this has been the norm where this this happens and it's just something that you accept as the healthcare provider. But there have been some occasions where a non-Indigenous healthcare provider isn't aware of the protocol for this and they express, uh, I can't even, I don't even want to say this or how to say it, but just, I guess, their disbelief that this is a thing that they have to deal with when they have to look after all of these other patients who are not in this dying process, I guess, or sometimes they can be insensitive and say when the patient has died, but not everyone, especially people, again, you know, people live are spread out. Family members can be spread out across the North. Um, They just, some family members have not been able to come and pay their respects. So they would need to the patient would need to remain in the room until they're able to come. And sometimes there can be some insensitive moments where healthcare providers would say they need the room. Family members would need to leave so that the room can be made available to somebody else. And I think that's definitely something that just has to be accepted as the way of life here because it's something that's always just been done. Um, where you you know that if someone from one of the communities passes in the hospital, that everyone is going to be coming. Everyone is going to be coming to pay their respects to the family, to the patient. It's it's just something that's done here. And I'm not sure how this is done in the South. I'm not sure how this is done for other First Nations groups, communities in the the rest of Canada, but this is something that's just done here. Uh, I think it varies uh, in different places. Uh, I do know that in general, we do like a lot of rules around how many people can be in a room. And sometimes those are around safety issues too, but you know, when you're talking about everybody, you're talking about not just maybe a dozen people. No, no, not 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 just the immediate family. It's <laughs> everyone who has known this person. So that's that's very different. And so it makes me wonder about, you know, how should we be? There are many non-Indigenous people, uh, clinicians, nurses, doctors, uh, others going to Northern communities, uh, Indigenous communities. And um, your statements have led me to believe that there's probably more non-Indigenous care providers than there are Indigenous care providers. Is that correct? In my region, I am the only registered nurse that has graduated from that region. There have been others since, but I was the first. As far as I'm aware, I'm the only one who's fluent in my language. Um, because a lot of the other nurses who have followed me, I don't think there are that many, speak English. I think for a lot of the non-Indigenous healthcare providers that come north, not necessarily just to my region, should at least do a little bit of homework to find out where they're going to be going. Um, you know, for for the people in that region that they're going to be, uh, where they're going to be working, try to understand or try to learn a little bit about what language they speak. Um, I'm not saying go and take a language course in Tichon or or, uh, another Indigenous language here in the North, but um, just be aware of the language that is commonly spoken. And then maybe instead of just jumping to conclusions about the people or the community, maybe take a step back and observe a little bit of your surroundings and kind of seeing how things are done. First and foremost, before you make 
your own assumptions, I guess, about the people or the place where you're going to be going. And then the other thing that we had talked about previously was how a lot of healthcare organizations are implementing these cultural sensitivity, cultural safety courses, and making these courses mandatory for employees. But how how do you make something like that mandatory or even effective when the nurse or the doctor is only coming into the town, this community, the city for a week? And how are you even going to evaluate how effective these courses are going to be? I, I know that that's always kind of the the solution to this big question, I guess, you know, how do non-Indigenous healthcare providers come and work in a First Nations community? But again, like, how do you evaluate these courses? I think that coming into a First Nations community and assuming that the healthcare organization, the clinic, the hospital, or sorry, maybe not the hospital, but coming into a First Nations community and assuming that the clinic or that healthcare setting is going to be run the way that a non-Indigenous facility is going to be run is a major assumption. Okay. Okay. Can you tell me what would be the difference? Like what would be something that people might notice then? So if somebody came into my the my home community and into the clinic there on their first day and they were seeing someone a female elder someone in their 80s I think they would just automatically walk into the room and not realize that this person doesn't speak English and then they would be surprised to see another person in the room and not realize or what you know not understand who this person was and why they were there but in the planning for this appointment it would have already been arranged for an interpreter to be present for this person. And that's why they would already be sitting in the room with the doctor. Yeah. So um, those are good things, I guess, that have that have been uh, developed to try to support understanding. Yes. So, Leanne, we spoke about this earlier that you are from uh, far north, the far north. and uh, in what we would what we would term remote communities and i'm wondering how the need to communicate with people about illness and uh, so it might even be a diagnosis or uh, prognosis or any aspect of care how how does living in a remote place affect communication and access to care so we discussed this about how, you know, he, here, um, and again, uh, mostly speaking to my own region about um, communication. So I think a lot of non-Indigenous people who come north aren't really aware that that language can be a barrier to healthcare. Um, a lot of people are not confident speaking English, um, and a lot of people, like the elders, don't speak English at all and how having medical interpreters is commonplace in a lot of areas. The other aspect that I just want to bring awareness to about remote communities, especially in the Northwest Territories, is that access to specialists um, can be very difficult. So if you have an appointment to see a specialist down south, like Edmonton, it requires medical travel. So that means you have to leave your community and go to Edmonton for your medical appointment, where, like I mentioned earlier, you will likely not have access to someone who speaks your language. And this is where the non-medical escort comes into play, where they accompany you to the city, a city that you're not familiar with, and uh, to attend your appointments with you and to interpret on your behalf. I don't think that's commonly known, um, and especially when you put it into the context of distance. So I had spoken a few times at conferences where I pull up the map of Canada and then more specifically the map of the Northwest Territories and then bring into context the distance from Yellowknife to the major 
medical facility, which is Edmonton. That's where you go to to see all the specialists, how long it would take to get you from A to B. So just for context, Yellowknife to Edmonton driving is roughly 15 hours. Flying is about an hour and a half, a two hour flight one way. When you're going from further north, you have to travel, do, you know, intercommunity flights. You can go A, B, C, D to get to Yellowknife. And then from Yellowknife, you go to direct to Edmonton. That could take up to two days just to get to Edmonton. Then there's your medical appointment. And then you do the same thing on the way back. So it's not as simple as just driving downtown to see a doctor. <laughs> um, so access to specialists or healthcare specialists is not easy to come by. Aside from the communication barrier in healthcare, distance is also a factor. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around, isn't it? I mean, when you're not from there. Um, you know, it's very common to have a couple of hours driving or maybe three or so in the South to get to a major center. But, but uh, that, that has implications, uh, what you're describing way, way beyond that. And then weather also <laughs> gets in the way too, doesn't it? For sure. And then again, just to give you like an example of this. So during the pandemic, obviously, you know, everything was disrupted. Medical appointments had to be changed to virtual own because in-person appointments were impossible. During the pandemic, when I was working uh, in the clinic, there were situations where patients had to go south for medical appointments, but were considering canceling them altogether because they didn't know the city. They had never traveled out of the territories by themselves. They were not confident in speaking English. And so, you know, the pandemic definitely didn't help in situations like this. But I think even without having COVID happening during that time, I think for someone who's never left the Northwest Territories by themselves, like this, this is not something that's easy to do. And the simplest thing was just canceling important medical appointments because of fear, just not knowing kind of how how they were going to be able to, to do this by themselves. Thanks for that reminder that uh, even when we're looking after people in Southern communities that are from the North, thinking about the fact that they are not likely comfortable in the surroundings is, is hugely important. For sure. And then I wanted to actually kind of go back a little bit about the the medical travel thing too is that um for a lot of the major medical interventions that must take place like surgeries um that's especially if it's surgeries that can't be performed here at uh, your nearest medical uh, center like Stanton Hospital if you're having to have surgical procedure done down south like Edmonton there's also the follow-up aspect of it as well so you're expected to stay in the city for your recovery and then for the follow-up appointments with the surgeon before you're able to come home using myself as an example um, I, I had to remain in the city in Edmonton for a month after my surgery and that was easy for us to do because I lived and worked there previously. I went to university there. My husband and I were familiar being in a big city and that wasn't a problem. But for other people who were not used to living in a big city or not used to being in a big city for extended lengths of time and being away from their family, um, of course, something like a major surgery in a larger center has implications being away from your family for, you know, um, several weeks. Uh, and then also financially as well. And I touched on this um, in one of my articles is that, you know, um, I was fortunate enough to 
be employed at the time. I had health insurance. But for other people who weren't um, as fortunate as we were, I know that um, they also have to factor that in too. finances, um, being away from family for an extended length or an unknown period of time um, could also be tough. Leanne, thank you so much. You have given us much to think about, including questioning our own assumptions and expectations and routines in our communication that affects how we build relationships, especially with Indigenous people in Northern communities. We'll provide links to the articles and resources that you suggest on our website at RadicalNurseTalk.com. Thanks for listening. We're grateful to those of you who continue to follow and share this podcast on social media and help our audience grow. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at www.RadicalNurseTalk.com or by emailing us at RadicalNurseTalk at gmail.com. The producer-editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos-Foley. Social media by Amy Strachan.